We would be those, O Lord our God, who do fear you and who receive your holy word with meekness and who mark it and give close attention to it and seek to not only know it, but to know you through it and to live in accordance with its precepts. So we pray, O God, as your word is now proclaimed, that you would give grace to the preacher and grace to the hearer, and that you would grant the Holy Spirit's ministry in our midst in this important passage in the Holy Scriptures that you've given to your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Some of you are sports fans. Some not, I know. But others are. And if you're not a sports fan, surely at one time or another in your life, uh, whether willingly or unwilling, you've been in the presence of a sports broadcast. In sports broadcasting... Big plays are often reviewed from multiple camera angles. The same play is replayed repeatedly from different perspectives to show its spectacular nature. Likewise, revelation often involves recapitulation or repetition the replaying of important biblical, theological, and Christological themes from different perspectives. Chapters 1 through 11 deal with Christ's victory over his enemies, culminating in the glorious establishment of the church as his holy temple in chapter 11 and verse 19. Chapters 12 to 22 deal with the church's victory over her enemies, ending with her glorious establishment once again as God's holy temple. Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2, verse 22. Thus, the second half of Revelation covers much the same material, the same ground as the first half, but from a different perspective a different camera angle of the vision, if you will. Revelation chapters 1 to 11 gives us a picture of the the church persecuted by the world. Its, Its trials, its tribulations are depicted for us in the seven seals and the seven trumpets. But chapters 12 to 22 tell us what's going on behind the scenes of this conflict, nothing less than war in heaven. What we encounter here in verses 7 to 12 uh, doesn't describe events that are yet to happen in the future, nor is it a chronological addendum to verses 1 to 6. It's a kind of replay of verses 1 to 6, of Christ's victory over Satan 
a complementary vision showing the same conflict between the woman and the dragon, verses 1 through 5, and the sequel to that conflict between the woman and the dragon in verse 6, here in chapter 12. But from a different perspective, even in the same chapter. Even in chapter 12, we have... Um, we see this, uh, this literary device, recapitulation, repetition of the same theme, different perspective, same matter being addressed here. And here in chapter 12, in our text, the birth of the woman's seed and his ascension to the throne of God is seen as the turning point of war in heaven. The theme of verses 7 to 17 is therefore identical to the theme of verses 1 to 6. Satan is already doomed, for Christ is reigning from his heavenly throne, and his people are destined for complete victory because of his work. Satan is already doomed. For Christ is reigning from his heavenly throne, and his people are destined for complete victory as well because of the work of their Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the message of Revelation chapter 12. We'll see two things here. The turning point of war in heaven, and then the sequel to war in heaven. The turning point of war in heaven, and the sequel to war in heaven. In heaven. In the book of Daniel, Michael is one of the chief princes and a great prince in the unseen spiritual realm. Michael assists God's angelic messengers in their warfare against the princes of the kingdoms of this world and stands guard over God's people. That's what we read. We read that. Um, in Daniel 10 this morning, also uh, in Daniel 12 and verse 1, Michael is again, uh, he appear, again appears in, in Daniel's prophecy. Michael's power and his holiness make him a fitting commander of the Lord, uh, the, the hosts of, of God's loyal angels as, as they join the battle against the dragon and his angels. So here we have a, a, a war in heaven being depicted between the angels of heaven and the fallen angels, the, the dragon and, and his angels, against Michael, who is called uh, the, the, one of the chief princes of the angels, the great prince uh, of the angels, and the holy angels, against Satan and the fallen angels, the rest of the fallen angels. And as that battle is depicted here in, in chapter 12, the dragon and his angels weren't strong enough. There was no longer a place found for Satan and his cohorts in heaven. And consequently, they were 
cast down to earth. Verses 8 and 9. As that, the loud voice that follows in verse 10 makes clear, the battle symbolizes the truth that Satan has been disbarred from his place in heaven. Satan is an accuser. Satan is the prosecutor of God's people. And now Satan has been disbarred from his place as prosecutor, as the accuser of God's people. The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses before uh, accuses them before our God day and night. But now we're reading here in this uh, vision that, that Christ is giving to John, no more. No more is this demonic prosecutor of heaven, this demonic accuser of God's people. No longer does he have a place in heaven any longer. In the background... Uh, are those Old Testament passages of God's tribunal in heaven in which Satan stood among the sons of God to bring indictment against God's people. Perhaps most well known to us is in Job chapter 1, verses 6 to 12, where Satan comes among the sons of God, and he's, he comes in particular to bring an accusation against God's servant, Job. And that allegation was that Job's fidelity to God wouldn't stand if God were to take away the blessings, the earthly blessings that he had given to Job, and remove his protective hand from Job. So Satan recognizes who God is. He recognizes God's blessing. Satan is wise like that. He knows God. He knows about God. He knows, uh, he knows all about God's relationships with his people. He knows that God blesses his people. He knows God protects his people. And so Satan says to God, you take away all of that, and he'll curse you to his face. But it was the devil's accusations that did not stand. Job did stand. Satan's accusations were disproved. Chapter 12, uh, 2, rather, verses 9 and 10 here in Job, where Job stood fast in his integrity and did not curse God. In that passage that we read in, in Zechariah this morning, uh, Zechariah's vision of the post-exilic high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord in filthy garments, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3 of that prophecy. Satan's accusation here is that Joshua isn't worthy. Joshua is, is unworthy to, to make sacrifices for God's people, and if if the high priest is unworthy to make those sacrifices, how will God's people 
be cleansed? How will they be forgiven? But the Lord, this is the angel of the Lord, remember, the Lord rebukes Satan by the Lord. The angel of the Lord says to the Lord, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And he commands that Joshua's filthy clothing is replaced by a clean turban and spotless clothes, verses 4 and 5, there in Zechariah chapter 3. Because Joshua is a foreshadowing of the cleansing that is going to come through the branch. Uh, that's, uh, that's an image that Isaiah uses, remember. It's a, an image that Zechariah uses here. Uh, to uh, symbolize the Lord Jesus Christ. The branch is coming to cleanse. Joshua is a foreshadowing of the branch who's going to come and cleanse his people. Joshua and his companions foreshadow the branch, the Messiah, who is to come because they're his priests. And Jesus, the great high priest, is going to come and make atonement for his people and cleanse them. And the accuser's banishment from heaven, here in Revelation 12, shows that the branch has come. That's the point of our text. That's the point uh, that Jesus made when he said in chapter 10 and verse 7 that the the seventh trumpet would announce the the, the fulfillment of the kingdom, uh, the mystery of God, remember. And we, uh, I sought to make clear as we were considering that passage and, and the following passage in Revelation 11 that uh, the mystery of God is, isn't something that's, uh, that's unclear to us, uh, something that's a great puzzle for us, but rather uh, it's something that was in the old concealed and now in the new has been revealed, and that's the kingdom of God. That's what, that's what Jesus, uh, the strong angel of chapter 10, has said. That's what Revelation 11, uh, verse 15, after the trumpet has sounded, makes clear the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So because the kingdom has come, because Christ has come, the fulfillment of the mystery something once concealed, now revealed in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, Satan has been thrown down from heaven. And Satan can no longer lodge accusations against God's people for whom the Lamb has shed his blood Here in verses 10 and 11, our brethren overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. So the battle that we have depicted for us here, uh, the battle that 
uh, in heaven that, that results in, the, in Satan's expulsion from heaven isn't the primeval conflict before Adam's fall, when Satan and the other angels who had been created by God inexplicably turned against their uh, creator sometime after the creation of the world and, and the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. Rather, the war in heaven that John sees in symbol here was fought on earth when Jesus suffered and died outside of Jerusalem on a cross and then rose again from the dead and was caught up to the throne in heaven. In other words, the coming of the kingdom, the coming of God's kingdom, precedes Christ's final victory at his second coming on the last day. The kingdom has come. That's the message of Revelation 12. That was Jesus' own message when he came preaching. Mark chapter 1, is, uh, Mark's gospel makes clear, like no other gospel, that Jesus came preaching and he came preaching the kingdom of God, and he said the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has arrived because I am the branch. I am the Messiah. And that's what's being shown to us here in Revelation 12. From heaven's perspective, Revelation 12, 12, It's the coming of the kingdom that produces unmitigated joy. Heaven is rejoicing because the kingdom has come through the Lord Jesus Christ. The accuser's authority to accuse the brethren has been nullified by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Heaven is rejoicing. But to earth, the dragon's defeat now brings increased trauma and increased woe. Verse 12, woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. The sequel Uh, to his rage, shows that God's people, uh, though exposed to this woe, yet have hope because Satan's violence is is thwarted by the church's divine protector. But nevertheless, we're to understand that there's an ongoing war. The sequel to the, to the war in heaven shows us that there's an ongoing war between the church and Satan. And that means that Satan still does seek to accuse and deceive the brethren. And one of his chief strategies is to accuse God's people of still living under the guilt of their sin. That's what Satan wants us to believe. The Bible clearly tells us in a hundred ways 
that all of our sins have been forgiven, that there is no longer any guilt because of Christ's atoning blood, because we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. But Satan will accuse you a hundred ways to Sunday that you're still under the guilt of your sin. That's his strategy. Even though he knows he's defeated, even though he knows he has just a short time, relatively, that's how he operates. That's his standard operating procedure. And that's where Daniel's prophecy lends such perspective to us in terms of, of this warfare. Because it tells us that the angelic hosts are enlisted in the affairs of earthly kingdoms, that though Daniel, as he sees these visions, is disconcerted about what's going to come in terms of what it means for God's people and the the trials and tribulations that, that it will bring. Nevertheless, God rules over his people, and Daniel must understand, and therefore God's people of all ages must understand that, uh, that, the, that the devil's power, Satan's power, Satan as he works through the kingdoms of this world, that power is limited by God. This is the perspective that our text presents to us as we think about the turning point in heaven's war. But then, secondly, the the sequel to the war in heaven, verses 13 through 17. The sequel in the conflict between the the woman and the dragon is shown briefly in chapter 6. Uh, the, the devil wants to devour the, the, the child that's born of the woman, verse 4. He's caught up to God in heaven, verse 5. Verse 6, the woman flees into the wilderness because the devil is persecuting her. The woman, woman remember, represents the church. She symbolizes the church, and so uh, Satan can't, He can't devour the child. The child is caught up to heaven, to God's throne. And so he turns turns his fierce venom, his anger, upon the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that same sequel now is being replayed here in verses 13 to 17. The woman is again seen fleeing here in uh, in, uh, verse 13 into the wilderness as she did in verse 6 because... The, the dragon, having lost his bid to overthrow God in heaven, is now pursuing the woman. He's pursuing the church. He's persecuting the church to destroy her. She flies on the eagle's great wings in verse 14. That's imagery, uh, you remember, that was used to describe Israel's exodus from Egypt 
Exodus 19, verse 4, you yourselves see what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. And I brought you to myself. In the wilderness then, the woman symbolizing the church is nourished for a time and times and half a time. The same period, remember, as the 1260 days of verse 6, representing three and a half years of persecution. There in the desert, in the wilderness, the the woman is, is fed as Israel was fed in the wilderness, as Elijah was fed in the wilderness. Exodus 16, 1 Kings 19. Cared for, provided for, fed by God's special care and provision. So God has placed Messiah's mother the church, beyond the reach of the great enemy. Verse 14, away from the presence of the serpent, away from the presence of the devil, away from the presence of Satan. So Satan launches another strategy. It's an ancient strategy of destruction. Verse 15, the serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away by the flood. In Revelation, what proceeds from the mouth symbolizes words and their power. John sees a sharp uh, sword proceeding from the mouth of Jesus, the Son of Man, in that vision that Uh, that Christ gives to him, chapter 1 and verse 6, whose sovereign pronouncement on uh, the false teachers, remember in the letter to Pergamum, will bring destruction unless they repent. This same Son of Man, armed with the same sword, Proceeding from his mouth is uh, in Revelation 19, 11, 13, 15, and 21. The faithful and true captain of the Lord, of heaven's armies, the word of God. Remember the two witnesses of chapter 11, the two prophetic uh, witnesses. have such a strong testimony that if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. In chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, John will see emerging from the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, deceiving demonic spirits in the form of frogs, set out to gather the world's kings to wage war against the God of heaven. And so here, what proceeds from the mouth symbolizes words and their power. Again, Satan is limited. Satan is 
bound by chains. Satan is dragging his ball and chain as he roams about through all the earth, walking to and fro, as he's pictured there in Job. But he still has power. The power that God grants to him. But still power, as God in his decree is pleased to use this demonic angel for his own purposes. And so here the floodwaters of the dragon's mouth symbolizes the deceptive teaching of, uh, that, that would, if, if believed, drown the church's faith, destroy the church's life. Do we not see that even in our day? Do we not see that kind of teaching today? Isn't it prominent in the church today? False teachers arising from within the church even. As Peter prophesied would, would happen, Second Peter chapter 2, seeking to destroy Satan at work, even in the church, seeking to destroy the woman, seeking to destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw those threats present again in uh, the church at Pergamum, Revelation chapter 2, in the form of uh, the Nicolaitans' lies and Jezebel's promise of, of deep knowledge into the secret things. In his first epistle, John called the church to exercise discernment in testing prophetic spirits since many false prophets controlled by the spirit of the Antichrist and denying the incarnation had gone out uh, into the world. 1 John 4 verses 1 to 6. Isaiah rebuked Israel for thinking that they could find their own place of safety, a place that would protect them from the floodwaters. Such self-reliant hope was futile. Isaiah 28 verses 17 and 18 says, For hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters will overflow the secret place. Your covenant with death will be canceled. And your pact with Sheol, the grave, will not stand. The only safe place is the tested cornerstone laid by the Lord in Zion. Isaiah 28 verse 16 says. And so here, because the woman of Revelation 12 finds her refuge in the place that God has prepared for her, he makes good on his promise to her. Isaiah 43, verse 2, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. And as the wilderness in the days of, of Moses, 
as in the wilderness, the, the ground swallowed up the priestly pretenders, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, Numbers chapter 16. So now, Revelation 12, 16, the earth swallows uh, the dragon and his pretentious lies, and God protects his people. Unable to consume the male child or drown his mother in a river of lies, the dragon turns and wages war against the rest of her children or the rest, uh, the, the rest of her seed. Uh, we understood this as a, a reference back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the pro-evangelion, the first announcement of the gospel, uh, the, where uh, Satan is cursed there, Satan in his seed. Uh, it's, it's told there, pre-announced to us that, that Christ would be victorious. Christ and his seed would be uh, victorious, the one who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Satan is, is going to continue to, to uh, attack the church. He will do so through his beast, who's about to arise from the sea, uh, chapter 13, uh, to wage war on the saints. And the woman's other children share in her son's victory as they testify of their trust in Jesus, the Lamb showing that their faith is genuine. Now, because the woman is distinguished here from the rest of her seed, some think that uh, the woman uh, symbolizes, and we've said as much that in a sense, uh, the woman symbolizes here the faithful remnant of Israel, the Jews, and some interpreters understand the rest of her children to understand, uh, to, to, to uh, symbolize rather uh, Gentile believers who would be saved through the gospel. But what we see in John's vision is that distinct symbols uh, that point us uh, to a, a referent are often just different perspectives, not necessarily a different referent, but point us to different perspectives on the same And so here, the protection of the mother promises that the church will never perish. And the dragon's war against her offspring reminds us that God shields the church's members, not necessarily always from physical violence, but from spiritual destruction. The dragon doesn't have that power because he's been limited by God. So in verses 7 through 12 in this vision, we are presented an astounding insight into the unseen world. It casts light on Paul's comment in Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 10. And following, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Christians can commit one of two errors concerning this struggle against spiritual forces of wickedness. Either being oblivious to the spiritual battle or being fixated or fearful of demonic powers. Revelation 12 gives us a balanced perspective, if you will on those spiritual forces of wickedness that are arrayed against the church of Jesus Christ. They present Satan as a powerful, raging enemy who must be reckoned with. So we're not to make any mistakes here. Satan is a spiritual, an evil force who has allied himself against Christians and who is a force to be reckoned with. We must understand that. You and I must understand that and be aware of the wiles of the devil, his devices, his trickery, his deceitfulness, his accusations. So we shouldn't brush it off when somebody says, "I, I, I think Satan is attacking me. We shouldn't brush it off when, some, when, uh, when uh, a minister says, I believe the church is, is attacking, or rather the devil is attacking uh, the, the church that I, that I pastor. It's real. We need to be aware of that. We need to have a, uh, the, the right perspective on Satan, on the devil, on demons, on spiritual forces of wickedness. But Revelation 12 teaches us that though, as Peter says, your devil, uh, your, your adversary, the devil, uh, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, there's a sense in which Satan is like a dog who appears ferocious, but whose bark is worse than his bite thrown down from heaven, already defeated through the cross of Jesus Christ. The outcome of the battle is not in question. Christ is already victorious, and you and I are already victorious in Christ. We've already overcome through the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, and you and I must have this perspective, this balanced perspective. Because in verses 13 to 17, the vision informs us that God not only protects us from the presence of this great dragon, who is called the devil and Satan, but also nourishes his church while they're in the wilderness. You don't have to live long as a Christian to understand that the world in which we are living 
is a wilderness. And it's a spiritual desert. God gives us refreshing times. Praise God for that. Refreshing times in this life. He shows us our victory. He shows us that we've overcome in the blood of the Lamb. But nevertheless, until the day that we die, we're going to be living in this world, which is for the Christian a wilderness. And what Revelation 12, verses 13 to 17, is telling us is that God is protecting us and he's nourishing us in our pilgrimage on the path to the celestial city, which is a wilderness. It's a desert trail. How is the church corporately nourished? How are we individually nourished? How in particular do we find nourishment in times of great testing as the first century church was undergoing here the great tribulation Jesus calls it in the Olivet Discourse Matthew 24 Revelation 1 verse 3 and verses nine, uh, th- chapter 3 verses 9 to 10 not only contribute toward the answer to these questions but show us how God's protection and his nourishment are integrally connected. How God's word nourishes and protects us. Here we read in, in uh, Revelation Chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. Then in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. I'll make them to come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you have been you've kept the word of my perseverance. I will also keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come on the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. How do we receive that nourishment? How is that protection and nourishment connected? It's through the word of God through the Word of God preached. It's through the Word of God read. It's through the Word of God obeyed. Preached and heard, read and understood, and obeyed. That's how God protects us. He protects us through the means of grace. That's how he does what's being depicted for us in symbols. Now, these symbols may be hard to understand, but once we understand, they're very practical, aren't they? God's means of grace fortifies you against the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
We need God's presence. We need God's word. We cannot succeed against our powerful adversary unless we have God's word and his protection. That's clear, even if the symbols might seem fuzzy in our minds. That much is clear. We need God's presence with us. We need his word. The poet has expressed this so poignantly in a well-familiar hymn, I need thy presence every passing hour. What but thy grace can spoil the tempter's power? Let's pray. Our great and glorious God in heaven, we We praise you for your word. We praise you for uh, these sections of your word that are so hard sometimes for us to understand. So we continue to cry out to you that you will give us understanding. You'll help us to see the plain meaning of these symbols. And you'll help us to apprehend them, to take hold of these principles, to to take hold of the promises that you have have shown us in in these symbols. You could have expressed them in so many different ways, and and to be sure you do, O Lord, you have throughout the rest of Scripture. And yet as we find these glorious promises reiterated for us here, would you grant that we might see them clearly and take hold of them by faith and be nourished on your word, Help us in our perspective, O Lord. We are often found sleeping at the wheel, unaware of Satan and his activities, even in our own experience and in the experience of the church. Help us to see these things, but O Lord, help us too to recognize that your power is greater than this great dragon's that you, O Lord, have won the victory, that you, Lord Christ, have gained the victory for your people, and we are victorious. Help us to revel in that victory during our time trudging through the wilderness of this world and keep us trusting. Protect us, O Lord, from the devil's deceit and accusations through the blood of the Lamb, our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.